Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis about the covenant ceremony and agreement between Abraham and God. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org or on iTunes. We have exciting news. We're continuing to announce that Tom Cantor has finished his long-awaited Friendship with God Bible. It's a King James Bible with over 2,200 pages and has over 600 pages of Bible helps and resources. Hebrew root notations in the Old Testament, over 30,000 Bible column inline scripture references, daily bread reading notations, a tour of the Bible scripture journey, 12 custom full-color maps, and a full-color nine-page history of Israel timeline map, not to mention an incredible concordance, and the most popular Bible scripture reference section, Bible reference help section, prophecy and fulfillment section, names of the Messiah section, hundreds and hundreds of other personalized pages from Tom Cantor, too many to name, to help you study your Bible and grow your friendship with God. It's printed on Finland thin paper printing technology and will be covered in lambskin leather. Now, reference commentary like this will cost $200 or more, but we'll be offering the Tom Cantor Friendship with God Commentary and Reference Bible at less than $80 if you sign up today for the first limited print run release. Please call us at one 800 247 3051, 1-800-247-3051. Now here's Tom Cantor teaching us from Genesis, but starting off with an illustration on God shielding him during a business encounter in Japan. And you look and there's a big room. And right where you enter was in the middle of the room. And the middle of the room was this long table there that sat 25 people on each side. And so Mr. Tamimoto was very obvious who he was. He was in the middle of this room, right when the door is open. And so he has, you know, ten directors on one side, the left side, and then he's got Mr. Kanda, the translator, and ten directors on the other side. And then we just open up, and then on our side are only two chairs, (laughs) one for me and one for John. And mine was right across from Mr. Tamimoto's. So Mr. Taimoto-san, as soon as the doors open, he just glares at my eyes with this unflinching intensity. And he could feel it. And as soon as I sat down, he starts yelling to me in Japanese. And he yelled with this ferocious passion. He was just so angry. His face got red and the veins on the side of his neck started to bulge out of his neck. And he started to pound his fists on the table. And he leaned forward to yell at my face more closely. And as he yelled so strongly, spit was coming out of his mouth. And it was landing on my face. (laughs) And on my shirt and tie and jacket. And I just didn't move. I, didn't, I just sat there. And he was in a total rampage. And from the minute he started to yell at me, every one of those directors dropped their heads and looked on the ground. It was like a symphony. The minute Tommy Motosan started to yell, all together they all dropped in unison. And John was in shock. He was looking at me as the spit from his mouth is landing on my face. And I never wiped off the spit. And I just smiled graciously, and I thought to myself, this is the one time I'm so glad I don't understand Japanese. (laughs) And he yelled, and he hollered, and he pounded his fist for 15 minutes, but it seemed like forever to me. And all during that time, he's yelling at me, Mr. Kanda, he's taking notes. He started writing down the notes, and he's flipping from page to page. He's writing, you know, Mr. Tamimoto-san speaking, and he's flipping the notes. Finally, he stops in this rampage, and then he turns with this angry look at Mr. Kanda, you know, to translate, say to me. And he glares at Mr. Kanda. And so Mr. Kanda quickly looks over the pages of his notes, 
And I was really afraid what we we're going to hear next, you know. And Mr. Conda pauses. And Mr. Tommy Moto's, you got a picture of this thing. Mr. Tommy Moto's glaring at him. Mr. Conda, he got serious like he pauses. And he looks up at me. And Mr. Conda smiles and says, Tommy Moto-san says, welcome to Japan. <laughs> And he says, how was your flight? <laughs> and I smiled. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you very much. <laughs> I said, flight was fine. And that's all I said. And then Mr. Kanda, he wrote down some notes. And he turns to Mr. Tamimoto. And he spoke for 10 minutes of what I said. All I said was, the flight was fine. You know? <laughs> and I thought, why does it take such a long time to say the flight was fine? And when Mr. Kanda finished, Mr. Tamimoto, he grunts, he gets up, he walks out the door, and he slams the door. And that was the last time I ever saw Tamimoto-san. <laughs> and then I wiped the saliva off my face and clothes. <laughs> well, you know what Mr. Kanda did for me? <laughs> what he did for me was the same thing that God did for Abraham. He was a shield for me. Mr. Kanda was a shield for me, protecting me from what Mr. Tamimoto-san was really saying to me. I'll never know what Mr. Tamimoto-san said in that meeting. And I asked what they said, and they said, you don't want to know. <laughs> and so and I'll never know. But that's what the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. He shields us from the attacks of the enemy, that we may never know what was planned against us. Now, in verse 8, in our last study, we saw that Abraham was very human when he asked God for some assurance. He asked for some assurance. How could he know that God was really going to make good on his promise to give him the land? Well, and then we saw how God painted for Abraham a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that was designed to give him assurance. God paints the picture through animals that he asked Abraham to bring for the sacrifice. We saw how the first three animals were all tamed animals. They weren't wild animals that needed to be captured. And the three animals, they just came willingly to the altar, which is, remember, it means the place of slaughter. And they came there, and that's just like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just like one word, as we saw from Isaiah 53, that described our Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53, 7, where it said he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought, or as it says in Acts 8, 32, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So the word is brought, the word is led, he's brought that way, tame. And like those three animals, the Lord Jesus Christ came willingly, no resistance to the cross. Roman soldiers did not have to struggle with him, maybe struggle with others, but they didn't have to struggle with him about when it came to torturing him. It says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, the Lord Jesus said, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. So he gives his back to the beaters. He gives his cheeks to those who were ripping out the hairs of his beard. He doesn't turn his face away from those who are spitting at him. He gives his hands and his feet. He gives them to the Romans and say, here, and then they nail him to the cross. He never protests. As it says, he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth in Isaiah 53, 7. So he did all that because he knew we needed him 
to be our sacrifice if we're going to be redeemed. And so he yielded himself to the whole process. He knew the price for our redemption was his blood, and he wasn't going to hold it back. His blood was going to flow if we were going to be saved. And the heifer speaks of the freshness of strength. And when the Lord Jesus Christ died, he was in the midst of his strength. He was 33 years old. He didn't have, like we have, a list of woes, what's wrong with us. He was strong. He was full of vitality. And the goat speaks of how the goat was made the sin offering. When the priest laid his hands on the head of the goat and confessed the sin over the goat, then the goat became the sin offering, and then he was killed as a sin offering. And that speaks of 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The ram, as we said, spoke of the consecration. It was the shoulder of the ram that the priest would wave before the Lord as a statement of consecration, dedication to God. And he says in John 8, 29, He that sent me is with me, the Father hath left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. So he went to the cross because he obeyed the Father who sent him to die for our sins. He obeys the Father because he's totally consecrated to the Father. That's the ram. And all of those animals, as it's specified here, were three years old. Now, that's the animal, that's the time when those animals would be fully grown. They're not going to grow anymore. And that gave them, that gave the keeper, and Abraham in this case, the time to make sure this animal was an unblemished animal. I know exactly the animal I want for this sacrifice because I've watched this animal for the full time of his growth during the three years. I'm convinced there's no blemish in this animal. He's the one. And the Lord Jesus Christ started his public ministry and when John the Baptist had baptized him and he was 30 years old and he was crucified when he was 33 years old. So during those three years, just like those three animals, everybody examined him. He was on public display. Three years, his friends, his disciples watched him day and night. Three years, his enemies dogging his trail, they watched him. Three years after three years, Pilate makes the statement for everybody when he says in Luke 23, 4, that said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And Abraham would say about the three animals that were three years old, I find no fault in each one of these animals. Pilate found no fault in the Lord Jesus because after three years of being on public display, there was no fault to be found. He was sinless. And the three years of age of the heifer and the goat and the speak of the time when the Lord was on public display. Then the two birds, the turtle dove and the pigeon. Those birds which fly in the sky symbolize where the Lord Jesus Christ came from. In John 3.13 it says, No man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So the two birds that fly and come down from the skies to earth, they symbolize the Lord Jesus coming down from heaven to earth. And Abraham knew what to do with those animals. How did he know? Verse 10. Because what he did in verse 10, which it says, he took unto them all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds dividing not. What Abraham was doing there was a very common practice of a covenant ceremony. It was a covenant ceremony. The covenant ceremony in those days were where two people, two parties, made an agreement, and then they would agree on what the animals would be used 
for in the covenant ceremony. And then they agreed that they would kill the animals and divide the carcasses into pieces and make a little path where half of the pieces of the bloodied pieces of animal were on one side of the path and the other half of the bloodied pieces of animals were on the other side of the path. And so if you can picture the scene, it's a pretty gruesome, bloody scene. Slaughtering, butchering, animals in pieces, bloody pieces on one side of the path, bloody pieces on the other side. Very gruesome scene. And then each of the parties, what they would do is they would walk back and forth along this path. And as they walked back and forth along this path, each party would look at the bloody pieces of animals on each side of the path. And while they're looking at the bloody pieces of animals, they would say to each other that in case either party broke the covenant, in case either party was in breach of the contract, that it might be done to that party that's done to these animals. (laughs) We should do that today. Very dramatic. Very dramatic for two parties to promise to never break the covenant as they both agreed. The party that broke the agreement would become like these slaughtered pieces of animals. Now, the promise, in verse 11, the promise of the land, the promise for the future of the Jewish people was a solemn pledge that God was making to Abraham. Really, it's a one-way agreement. It's a one-way agreement. And immediately after God has made this pledge and this covenant ceremony is really in the middle of it, immediately in verse 11, it says, when the fowls came down, and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So the fowls, in the Hebrew, the word is translated fowls, but it doesn't mean any birds. It doesn't mean like pigeons and turtle doves, but <laughs> it means birds of prey that eat carrion, like vultures, like ravens. And these kind of birds, like ravens in scripture, always symbolize satanic activity. Like the parable of the sower of the seed in Matthew 13, 4, where the first case, it says, when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And he explained in Matthew 13, 19, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. So here God has made this special solemn promise to Abraham, and during, in the middle of the covenant ceremony of making the path through the divided animals and so forth, the fowls come down upon the carcasses. Now, why did these fowls come down? Because Satan opposes the work of God. This was the work of God, this promise that God was making to Abraham about the Jewish people, about the land. And so what did these fowls represent? They represent a satanic harassment. They represent a satanic distraction. Abraham could have expected a satanic harassment and a satanic distraction at this time. And so what do we see Abraham doing when the fowls come down on the carcasses? It says Abraham, very simply, Abraham drove them away. Could Abraham have have, um, gotten uh, over-involved? He could have with the vows. He could have gotten real upset. And he could have said, you know, he... He could have said, I'm going to take care of these fowls once and for all. You've really irritated me, these ravens. He could have been talking to the ravens. He said, you irritated me. I, I don't remember seeing ravens before, so I need to find out where are these ravens coming from. <laughs> I'm going to leave this covenant ceremony and God, and I'm going to go track those ravens so I can destroy their nests. So bye-bye, God, I've got ravens to deal with. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. He on the other hand, what he could have said is that to Satan, is that all you got, Satan? Fowls? <laughs> Ravens? Is that your best shot, Satan? These birds? I can deal with the birds. I'll drive the birds away. 
And that's exactly what he did. He drove them away. But to get over-involved is what Abraham should not have done. Because Satan wanted Abraham to get over-involved, get so distracted, so harassed, that he leaves God and he go chases distractions. And Abraham shouldn't get so riled up over the harassments and distractions that it paralyzes him, that causes him to leave the covenant ceremony with God. And when we have set ourselves to do the work of God, we can expect what Abraham got, a satanic harassment, satanic distractions. Tom, today you mentioned that during Abraham's covenant ceremony with God, that satanic harassment and distractions of the ravens occurred. This was some bad timing, but Abraham handled it well. Things don't happen with perfect timing, so what are some of the examples of wrong timing in the Bible? Yes, well, you know, there's a very interesting uh, history which we have here between Elijah and his servant Gehazi. And here was a tremendous uh, miracle that God had done in the life of a Syrian uh, military commander by the name of Naaman. And he, Naaman had leprosy. Naaman was able in very, very many ways of his life, but he had leprosy. He's a picture of, of sin in our lives. We have abilities, but we have sin, but we are a sinner. And so Naaman, he was a leper. And so what happened? He came, the Naaman, he humbled himself. He came to Elisha. Elisha told him, go down into the Jordan, dip these seven times and your leprosy will be gone. Naaman argues with with Elisha. Finally, he comes to his senses and he says, okay, he goes and does it. God heals him of his leprosy. It's a wonderful thing. And then Naaman wants to give gifts to Elisha. Elisha says, no, but Gehazi, He's standing off there in the corner, and he says, boy, that's, that's crazy. This is an opportunity. We should take advantage of this. There's this man, and he's got all these gifts, his money, his wealth, and so forth. And so what happens? He, Naaman leaves, and Gehazi secretly goes out and follows Naaman, and he finds him, and he says, oh, oh, and he makes up a lie. You know, somebody has come to visit the, the prophet, and, you know, we really could use some gold. We really could use, et cetera, et cetera. And And so he takes those things and he goes and hides it. He comes back and Elijah says to him in 2 Kings 5, 26, he says to his servant Gehazi, he said unto him, went not my heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? See, what was he saying there? He's saying, you know, there will be a time when we'll go ahead and we'll have a rest and we'll receive the money and the garments and all these wonderful things that come. But it's not the time right now. It's the time for us to be about the master's business, just like the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. The foxes says have holes, but he didn't have a place to lay his head. Because it wasn't a time for him to build his mansion. That's later. Instead, it was a time for him to reach out and to seek and to save that which is lost. So the lesson that comes is the wrong time for us here on earth to settle down and to sink our roots down deep and to say, now I've come to my rest and I'm going to make the most comfortable living conditions I possibly can and I'm going to acquire and I'm going to amass and I'm going to have a lot of possessions and so forth. It's not the time for us now to do that. God says, Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard the things which he has laid up for them that love him. You see, that's in heaven. That's later. 
But right now is the time for us to work as the song goes. Work for the night is coming when we can't work anymore. But now it's not a time. And so in this case with Gehazi, that was also the case. Another example is in Acts 1-6 when the question was asked and then to the Lord, and they said, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So the kingdom had been taken away from Israel by the Romans, but it wasn't the time for him to restore the kingdom again. Because during this time of the diaspora, when the Jewish people, including the Jewish believers, would be scattered throughout the earth, that was the time for the gospel to go forth and to reach the Gentiles in India and in China and throughout Europe and down into Africa, because it was a time when there's going to be the scattering. So it wasn't the time, the time wasn't right to restore again the kingdom to Israel. Those are great biblical examples of wrong timing in the Bible. But what are some of the biblical examples of right timing that we see in Scripture? Yeah, right times in the Bible. Well, in Galatians 4.4, that's the crowning one, where it says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made unto the law. You know, we ask the question, why didn't he come earlier? When Adam first sinned, when Eve first sinned, why didn't the Lord Jesus Christ come then and die for their sins? Nope. Nope, because God had a great amount of teaching, a great amount of lessons that he wanted to bring his people through. The book of Leviticus had not been written. The book of Exodus, which contains the law, had not been written. The book of of Leviticus, which contains the sacrifices, had not been written. The book of Deuteronomy, which goes and rehearses all the history and God's faithfulness, had not been written. So God had a lot to teach his people, to bring them to understand who is God, a God of great love, a God of compassion, a God of caringness. Who is man, sinful, needy of God? What is the solution to man's sin? There must be a sacrifice. And so all of this had to go forward, and there had to be the millions and millions, as it says, of animals slain on Jewish altars and the ashes piling up, all to impress upon man. My sin has a consequence. It has a price. It's The price is death. So that when he did come in the fullness of time, when he did come and when he did lay down his life, then there could be the wonderful aha moments when they looked and they said, I understand that he is God and he was made of a woman, made under the law. He fulfilled the law for me. He fulfilled the Torah for me and he died for my sins. Now, Another right time in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 6, 2, where it says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So the right time to be saved according to the Bible, is now the right time to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess to him that we're sinners, to receive him as our Lord and Savior, to begin a new life with him is now. The Bible says now, not tomorrow, today. 
not in the future, but now, now. Uh, just recently, there were two older Jewish women in their 80s, and this uh, this week, they both, on the East Coast, different cities, they both started a new life in their 80s. And, and for them, when they heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and called on him to be their Savior, that was their now. That was their day of their salvation. And even though they're in their 80s, they were not too old to start a new life. And no one is too old to start a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he says, now, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So we come to God and we say, Lord, what's the right time for me to be saved from my sins? What's the right time for me to start a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's the right time for me to become a child of God? And God's answer in the Bible is, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. So God says, don't put it off. Respond to the gospel today. Turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ because now is the accepted time. And that is the crowning best time as far as the Bible is concerned for coming to him, responding to his salvation invitation, and to start the new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. You can help support this radio Bible teaching program and evangelical ministry by going to friendshipwithgod.org. That'll help to keep this Bible teaching radio program on this station in your city with your support, but it also helps us to get the gospel out to the Jew first and to the Gentile. Friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org to donate online, or you can call us directly at 1-800-247-3051, one 800 247 3051. We reach a million and a half lost Jewish people a year, and we need your support to stay on the air and keep the gospel going out to the Jew and Gentile alike. 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.